Hello, and thank you for joining us for another edition of the Global Data Pod. I'm Katie Marney, Global Emerging Market Economist at JP Morgan. I'm joined today by Bola Hantaiwo, Chief Economist at JP Morgan for Sub-Saharan and North Africa. Today, we're talking about Nigeria and its pivotal presidential election on Saturday. Nigeria is the largest economy in Africa with vast oil wealth, but years of mismanagement have worsened imbalances and it has failed to fully benefit from the commodity windfall. From multiple exchange rate regimes to central bank lending to the government, to ballooning fiscal expenditure, to high inflation and insecurity, the next president will have a full entry. But based on the polling, there is a chance that this election represents a break from the past. With this in mind, let's turn to you, Balahan. Uh, thank you for joining us today. So let's start out by setting up the political landscape for the listeners who may not be as familiar with Nigeria. Who are the parties, yeah. who are the candidates, and why is this election gonna be different from the past? No, thank you, thank you, Katie, for, for having me. Interestingly, Nigeria has about 18 political parties you know, registered for these elections. Um, some don't necessarily have presidential candidates, but they have some form of representation. Um, and some will be contesting for positions in, in the lower tiers of government. And, and that has always been the case, like every presidential election and the Nigerians had always had more than two parties contesting, but it, it typically would always end up being a two-horse race, right, between the two big political parties. Um, the first one is the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, um, that, that have been there for, for quite some time. Um, I mean, the, the second party, which is, you know, the ruling party at the moment is the All Progressive Congress. Um, I mean, it's worthwhile to mention that, that the APC actually was formed in 2013 in the lead up to the 2015 general elections. And, and the APC is largely a merger of the three largest opposition parties at the time. So they, they came together in a bid or changed the 16 year rule of the PDP um, in the previous in the previous year, so that was the the idea then. The APC was was a coalition, and they think they thought they needed to to come together to be able to defeat the PDP at the time, who was the ruling party for for over 16 years, um, or, or, or thereabouts. So at the moment, the PDP and the APC, you know, they remain the two biggest parties with with the, with their trench structures um, across across all states in in the country. You also ask the question is you know who, who are the candidates? Um, so for the APC, is is Bola, is Bola Ahmed Tinubu. He's, he's a veteran politician um, and is a very influential political leader within the party. Um, he used to be the governor of the, of the commercial capital in Lagos. This was between 1999 and 2007. And, you know, he's always been touted to be like, has played prominent roles, um, basically, in the election successes of the APC since 2015. So. In that light, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a force to be reckoned with. The major opposition party at this time is the PDP and is led um, from a presidential point of view by Atiku Abubakar, um, another political heavyweight in the country. He was vice president under you know, President Obasanjo between 1999 and 2007. And he has been vying for the top spot for, for quite some time as well. He lost the elections to President Buhari, of course, of course in, in 2019. And however, there appears to be a credible thought for us this time now, Peter Obi of, of, of the Labour Party. And, and this perhaps, you know, would be the first response to, to your other question in terms of, you know, what is different this time and, and, and what can we see? And, and I will elaborate on that, on that in a second. Um, but interestingly as well, the Labour Party has been around for over 20 years, basically since, since 2002, but of course they couldn't match up to the sort of structure and the political influence that, that the other two major major parties are. Um, Peter Obi, you know, 
used to be at the PDP. He was the vice presidential candidate with, um, with Atiku um, during the 2019 elections. He, he, he actually conducted the primaries um, with the PDP um, for the 2023 elections as well. But of course, he lost out um, to, to Atiku, and that's why he, he went into, into Labour Party instead. He is a Nigerian businessman and, and, and politician. He also served as a governor. Um, in one of the southern eastern states, um, I think in spells between between 2006 and, and 2014. So, so that's the backdrop of, of the of the lineup of the candidates, you know, sort of three major candidates that that we are seeing there. Um, what's different this time? Um, to go to go directly into that, you know, we put out a piece last week, you know, where we're not saying that we think the odds of, of, of the presidential runoff has now increased. And, and this is largely based on a few factors. One, that I already mentioned, there is now a credible thought force in Peter Obi, who seems to be getting a lot of support from, from the youth voter population as well. Um, I mean, in previous elections, there were other candidates, but you know, they never had this much influence in the run-up to the election. So it seems he has gathered some, some, some amount of influence going into the elections. You know, which is part of the reasons why we think that you know these elections are going to be more tightly contested um, than perhaps we have ever seen in, in the nation's history. Another key point to mention here is some electoral reforms that we have seen in the past in the past couple of years. So there is the new 2022 Electoral Act now that, that has introduced, if you like, some new accreditation system called the Bimodal Voter Accreditation System, the BVAS. Um, and this basically, it's, it's an electronic machine that is used for voter accreditation and it uses authentication with, with fingerprints on the face. So the idea here really is that, you know, this should help to, to reduce or eliminate voter fraud as much as it can. So that's, that's something different from the previous elections. And another point I would like to raise uh, perhaps here in terms of what is different is, you know, the continued rise in voter registration that we've seen. You know, the Electoral Commission has, has published the registered number of voters. Now we are up to, what, about 93.4 93 million registered voters. This is up from 84 million in, in 2019 and, and from about 68 million in, in, in 2015. Uh, interestingly, as you probably know, demographics of Nigeria has a lot of youth voter population, has a lot of youth uh, in essence. So I mean, about nearly 30% of these of these registered voters, in fact, are actually students. But the concern here is, over the past few years, there has always been some level of voter apathy in the country. So I mean, voter turnout in 2015, for instance, was 44%. That declined significantly to about 32% in 2019. If we are to see a runoff, for instance, or if, we, if the elections are going to be as tight as, as we probably predict, then you probably need that voter turnout to be above you know, the 2015 figures and maybe closer to 50%. That's what we have here in terms of what is different. And perhaps one final point I would make in terms of what is different and links to, to the first point about the support that the third force Peter Obi is getting at this time is, is the economic hardship in recent times. So over the past few months, there's been acute fuel shortages in the country. More recently, there has been a cash crush, if you like, and this is off you know, the central banks, you know, currency redesign policy as it were. You know, we wrote a piece as well late last year on this and, you know, our expectations were that this was going to cause some near-term liquidity squeeze and a negative world, world shock that would, that would primarily impact on growth. So we're seeing that play out as we expected. And, and we think that, you know, because of this hardship in recent times, perhaps particularly in the months leading up to elections, there is perhaps a bias from the youth voters here to, you know, shift away from the old guard 
and perhaps uh, I'm, I'm look for something new. And this, this lands favorably for, for the third first candidate, Peter Obi. So we have two establishment candidates and we have one you know, third party outsider. Um, and we've also talked about higher you know, voter registration, the, the likelihood that you know, the youth vote could be galvanized by economic hardship. What are, what are the polls saying in, against all of this? Interestingly, the polls have, have been differing somewhat. Um, and, and the outcomes are sort of based on, on the different methodologies. I mean, I mean, for starters, I think it's important to note that, you know, polling in Nigeria is still, in my mind, at an infancy stage. So, you know, there is a large degree, you know, of error that you probably would expect um, um, in this. But that being said, polls have used different methodologies and they've come out with different results. There was a, a recent poll by, by Premise Data that was published by Bloomberg. They are tipping Peter Obi as favorite to win 65% of the vote. You know, Tinobu from the APC to win about 19% and Atiku to win 10%. And, you know, if you can talk about the NOI polls as well, they actually have similar expectations where they see, you know, Peter Obi winning the elections. Um, and I think one poll that, that I think, again, is, is quite interesting in how they look at the dynamics is, is the one from Stairs where they looked at the high turnout scenario and then a low turnout scenario. Another high turnout scenario is where they think that Peter Obi wins. But if it's a low turnout scenario where, you know, perhaps you see the continued voter apathy that we've seen, that we saw in the 2019 elections, for instance, then, then in that scenario, they see Tinubu winning. When I put all of that on one side, they, you know, looked at respondents from somewhere between 2,000 to 4,000 people. So, I mean, it's, it's a relatively small sample size. But interestingly, there is this new poll that just came out, I think it was a couple of days ago, the poll off. It's a more comprehensive poll, if you like. You know, they looked at it, they went to, you know, three states across all of the geopolitical zones in, in the country, and the survey was conducted with over three million people. Now that is that is massive, that is large, that is large in that context. And it has an interesting outcome. You know, up until now, you know, all of the polls that I've spoken about had either Peter Obi winning or, or Tinubu winning. This one with the larger sample size actually has Atiku winning. Um, this time, even though they expect the elections to be there. So when we put all of this together, I think we are gearing up here for a very tight race, which is why, like I said earlier, we're now thinking a presidential runoff could be possible in this case, if you actually see those fragmented um, positions of those of those polls there. So I think I think it's going to be a very interesting matchup and, and it will be tight. Uh, and the presidential runoff is, is, is quite likely in this one. And what does, you know, given that this would really be a break from the past with, you know, three parties vying um, and a once in um, history runoff um, taking place, uh, what are, you know, what does this mean and, and what are the risks to governability, you know, are there risks to the protests if this happens? There is a possibility of a runoff. Um, I mean, if a runoff happens, like you said, Katie, it's going to be the first time in, in, in the history of the country that this has happened, this would happen. Um, for you to be declared president in the first round, you know, there are two conditions that need to be met. One, you need to have the highest number of votes. The second condition is, you know, 25% of votes in at least two thirds of the 36, 36 states and the federal capital territory. If there is no candidate that meets both requirements, then it goes into a runoff where, you know, the first candidate, of course, is the, is the candidate with the highest number of votes. And then the second candidate is the one that has the majority of votes across the highest number of states. So, so basically, that's how this would play out. And, and if we get into a runoff situation, 
the elections will need to be conducted within 21 days of the previous election. So that's how, that's how this would eventually play out. You know, to your point about the risk to governability and protects, I think for it to get to a runoff means that the elections are, are very tight, right, as expected. And we think that this could create a period of uncertainty in the country, and that could risk some, you know, political protests or fallout from, you know, interested parties and their, and their members and their groups, and which perhaps is not even going to be positive for markets as well. I mean, we, I mean, we don't envisage here that even in the, in the event of a runoff, you're going to have full-scale political protests going on, but we think it creates just some rifts and, and some periods of uncertainty. You might see a few political tensions flare here and there um, over mm -hmm. the period, but, but nothing, I mean, we're not pricing in anything uh, too significant here on, on that. Okay, so turning to, um, you know, we talked at the out outset about the tall tasks facing the next president. How do um, each of the candidates platform, uh, platform shape up and what do you expect to be their priorities in the first hundred days? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I should say, Katie, is that you know it's it's hard for you to pinpoint what the political ideologies for for Nigerian political parties are. So it's not it's not like you've probably seen in the developed world where you know what you know, the Democrats stand for, what the Republicans stand for. You know the <laughs> the parties here in Nigeria, you know, they've they've moved around a lot. You know, part of the members of the PDP were probably in the APC at some point or in another party. So. You know, in terms of ideology, it's hard to pinpoint uh, what what they are, what they typically stand for. You know, it's basically whatever the issue of the day is, and, and that's how they try to face it. So, I mean, when we look at the, the policy outlook and, and the sort of you know the manifestos that these at least the top three candidates have put out, they're very similar, and they've reverted you know somewhere around similar themes and centered around core issues, the borders of you know insecurity that borders on you know, fiscal policy, particularly when you're talking about subsidy removal and, and the revenue reforms, that borders on you know, FX and, and monetary policy orthodoxy. So all of those key issues are, are what you know, the manifestos are focused on. And what, you, what I think could be the, the different factor here under any of the, on the, of, of the president could be you know, the pace and the level of execution of, of these reforms that, that, that they propose. Um, I mean, on the fiscal side, it is clear what's needed. You know, this poor subsidy has been been a burning issue for quite some time. Many presidents have tried and failed to to remove it. In fact, this current administration had to you know push it again by another year. They expect it to be out by by June this year. This poor subsidies cost nearly ten billion dollars last year, and you know, that pushed fiscal deficit to somewhere around six percent of, of GDP by our estimate. So it's not. There's never been a politically palatable conversation to have um, because it will typically spark protests um, from, from the organized labor community. So the next president has an uphill tax here to come up with a proper fiscal plan that would you know, quickly sort of phase out the subsidies and mitigate and also mitigate the socioeconomic impact um, on the poor and the vulnerable. So the subsidies are a key one. All of them have spoken about it. All of them have spoken at how, about how they plan to remove it or phase it out um, um, in, in any ways. And another key thing, particularly on the fiscal side, is tax administration. You know, nominal revenues, interestingly, in 2022 improved materially. You know, they need to continue that trend. The IMF has called for reforms in that sector, more tax administration. The IMF has, in fact, even called for increasing VAT at times to be able to improve, improve nominal revenue. So I think all of these things are what you see um, the new president try to focus on. Going forward, there's also the issue around the oil production, which declined, you know, to record lows last year. 
started to pick up again in December to about 1.3, 1.4 million barrels per day. I mean, one of the quick wins that any president would have is to materially improve the oil production dynamics, particularly in this current environment. The other side of the equation to round up on that, on, on this point, is, of course, issues around FX and monetary policy. You know, FX, the, situa- the FX situation in the country has been quite dire, to say the least, in the past couple of years, you know, with multiple exchange rates, investment are low. I mean, foreign direct investment are at record lows, foreign portfolio investment are non-existent. So all of these factors, all of these points will be what the new president will be challenged with, at least within his first 100 days, I would say, and try to and try to resolve all of those issues. Yeah. So one thing that strikes me when we talk about Nigeria and the, the policy mix is, you know, much of the homework, whether it's FX policy, you know, central bank lending to the government, um, high inflation, comes back to the central bank and its policies. Uh, what is the outlook for the central bank under, you know, under a new administration? That's a big one. That's a, that's a really big question, Katie. I mean, because the monetary policy stance or, or the monetary policy management, as it were, or has been a function of, of the, the person at the helm, right? Who's basically the governor of the central bank. And, and under this administration, you know, we've seen you know, different monetary, forms of monetary policy and FX management under the current central bank. We've seen you know, the 41 items a few years ago in terms of you know, restrictions to, to goods that are allowed in the official FX market. You know some of these things that you know the IMF always you know calls and says you know they should they shouldn't be happening, but you know the current central bank governor's term expires in doesn't expire until next year June 2024. So I mean if you had to look at the best case scenario where you know this, this, the current central bank governor remains in place, um, then maybe not much is going to change um, from, from from that perspective from what we already know from what we already see, but it is not unlikely as well that a new president might want to switch things up and maybe that could involve a change in personnel. But I don't want to dwell on that too much. But but on the issues in itself is inflation remains high, you know, at, at near 22%. I mean, and we've seen some monetary policy tightening measures from the central bank over the past year, we've raised NPR by you know, about 600 basis points. When we look at it, I mean, and one of the studies, one of the pieces that we also put out is looking at, you know, monetary policy conditions index, right? And how loose is the monetary policy at these things up in? And we still find monetary policy to be somewhat loose. And that is linked to, you know, the point you mentioned earlier, Katie, you know, continuous central bank financing of the fiscal. So that that has been a big, if you like, impediment to, to the actual tighter monetary policy stance that could help, you know, bring core inflation down. Um, mm-hmm. And, and actually put inflation back on a more sustainable trajectory. But that being said, there are structural issues that, that, that tends to impact inflation in Nigeria, infrastructure, food prices, and whatnot. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a key thing that, of course, would, would need to be faced head on um, under the new administration. The final thing, of course, is, is FX reforms, right? You know, we've talked about, we've talked about multiple exchange rates, talk about the, you know, the gap between you know, the official rate and the parallel market, low FX liquidity in the country. And we think that you know FX policy reforms will be critical to safeguarding external sustainability, and of course guard guard against you know further aggravation of, of macroeconomic imbalances in the country. So I mean, to to your earlier point, I think what you said at at, at the beginning is that you know it's an uphill tax for the next president. There's a lot, a lot of things to fix, um, but they are fixable things, and they just need the, the political will to be able to get things going and put the country back on the more sustainable trajectory over the medium term. Sounds like the stakes are very high for Saturday with many twists in the story left and we should be watching the polls as they shake out. 
considering all that we've talked about, I don't think this will be the last time we cover Nigeria on the podcast. So thank you, Bolahan, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today.